0: Chapter fifty two, part four of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two, by Moncure Conway. Chapter fifty two, part four. Mrs. Daniel Lothrop, present owner of The Wayside, the pretty home of Nathaniel Hawthorne in Concord, Massachusetts, had the happy enterprise to make the centennial birthday of the unique author, July 4, 1904, the occasion of a literary fete. With beautiful hospitality she entertained in her house Julia Ward Howe, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and myself, of Hawthorne's acquaintance and with some of the younger generation, among these Beatrix Hawthorne, granddaughter of the great man, we the survivors held memorable symposia. As I had some work to do, our hostess placed me in Hawthorne's tower, where I penciled some thoughts which have connected themselves with a droll incident. On the first day of the Fete, wentworth higginson spoke out in the grove in his characteristic vein of subtle wit and wisdom and beatrix a lovely maid of twenty a mystical apparition of her grandfather drew aside the american flag which veiled a tablet of the author who walked there on the second day of the fete in the hall of the school of philosophy i presided and while the hon charles frauds adams was speaking There was suddenly a flutter of excitement among the front row of seats, all occupied by ladies. A snake, about one foot long, had crept through a hole near the low platform's base, raised its head from the floor, and remained motionless. A gentleman near the side door moved quickly down in front of the ladies, picked up the snake in his hand, and carried it to the door where he gently threw it out. The speaker had stopped, and when the snake was seen perfectly still in the gentleman's hand there was laughter. F. B. Sanborn increased the laughter by calling out the title of Hawthorne's tale, The man with a snake in his bosom! In that school of philosophy famous teachers have been heard—Emerson, Alcott, Dr. Harris, and others. No doubt each of them might have found the visit of the snake suggestive. Emerson might have described it as a line of grace and its harmless beauty an illustration of optimism—nothing really evil alcott might have seen it as a symbol of hawthorne's demonic genius any pious listener might have seen it as a sign of the old serpent still offering man the forbidden fruit of philosophy to my eyes the snake and the flustered ladies and the fine-looking gentleman who took it in his hand and restored it to the forest made a pretty fable of the author we were talking about the little garden snake was really as harmless as a riband and there was just enough shrinking as it passed and anxiety until the hole in the plank was stopped to remind us that even in that cultured audience the prettiest and most innocent little snake could not be detached from the bad reputation of its race it is in our nerves that little snake made me laugh in the chapel but that night i dreamed of seeing a big virginian black snake in fact the snake is the consecrated symbol of all purposeless and crafty evil in nature that is of diabolism and that which has got into our nerves is not so much dread of the serpent's venom as a subconscious dread of the dark and potentially evil forces within us related to those around us now it was in this dread realm that the genius of hawthorne moved with the vision of dante but without the superstition of dante the schools of philosophy have eliminated satan and optimism even declares there is no real evil But human consciousness knows that the dissolution of Satan only brings man the more immediately face to face with the perils and passions in his own breast. All the optimism in the world does not prevent us from contending with the tares, the diseases and agonies, and desolating passions, just the same as if those tares were sown amid the wheat by an enemy of man. That same day, July 5th, was the centennial of the one story-teller of the 19th century who can rank Hawthorne, George Sand. As I grow older I more and more recognize that the genius of the 19th century is stored in the hundred volumes of that miraculous woman. When a man's supernatural faith has departed, and his early dreams of a fair and peaceful world turn to illusions, his haven is Paris. There, at least, the work of creation continues, sitting in the atelier of fine sculptors, like Codin and Spicer Simpson, and seeing clay spiritualized in noblest forms, or among the painters who transfigure humble models into saints and goddesses, I have felt that with these chiefly the way-worn, weather-beaten pilgrims who have sought shrines only to find them tinsel and entered temples that crumbled round them, find some blue sky still bending over the world here at least is no dogmatizing no throat cutting but master builders surrounding the human spirit with the truth and beauty of life truth it was said that rufus coate described truth as a form of art it was quoted with a smile as if an apology for falsehood but the great lawyer had probably discovered how much art it requires to convey truth about any occurrence and how misleading may be a merely literal veracity would any unbiased student of history, theology, and ethics say that the library of such works contains as much truth as the library of so-called fiction in Paris? I read la douceur de croire by Jacques Norman quatrain: le bonheur humain est fait de mensonges qui rendent à tous les chagrins moins lourds que la trame des jours. Si Dieu ne mêlait les des songes, it seems a pity that the poet could not find to rhyme with songe a more felicitous word than mensonge, but his deity mingling with the weft of days the golden threads of illusion appears more attractive than a deity menacing with hell every mind that cannot take the illusion seriously. In Italy, Nathaniel Hawthorne, moved by sacred pictures, lamented that Protestantism had never been, by such means, ministered to his religious sentiment. Obie Frothingham, after laboring in the field of free thought for a quarter of a century, found that it made no headway, led to nothing, but in Italy found among the humble parish priests, ignorant, unambitious, and superstitious, a power which must mystify philosophers. Frothingham asked, What is this power? I cannot undertake to say. But standing on the shoulders of those great forerunners, mingling with the humble priests, and moved by the sacred pictures, I venture to say what I see. The old painters were potent, because they believed seriously the tales of ancient hawthorns, who wrote of Mary Magdalene as our great author wrote of Hester Prynne, and of Judas as he wrote of the man with a snake in his bosom the modern parish priest has power because he is superstitious and still more because he is unambitious he neither aims nor hopes to make any headway the humble priest aims not at headway for dogmas but so to say at heartway for visions and dreams that touch the heart and whose reality he is not learned enough to question those who think at all think freely they cannot take seriously the ancient illusions but believe as genuinely in the heart of their own illusions, in boccaccio rabelais shakespeare balzac george sand hawthorne the fiction is the embroidered vestiture of truth in the heart and in the nature of things we lose the truth when we seek it in the revelations of other ages as we would lose the rainbow in searching for the fabled treasure at its end the superstition of to-day is our inveterate belief that the world exists for some other coming world, in heaven or on earth. Woman is missing the grand benefits of her disenfranchisement and the rage for a franchise that would be found dross if attained. Men go to war and rejoice in victory. I have witnessed enough wars to cry in my heart, Voi victoribus! and seeing the intellectual and artistic supremacy of france these thirty years cry "Letitia victis during the conflict about dreyfus in france which i witnessed the admirable author paul sabatier said to me avait-on jamais vu dans l'histoire ou dans la légende pareille coalition de toutes les puissances tenebreuses "'Certainly not,' I answered, "'nor in history has there ever been seen a coalition of the powers of darkness confronted by such a coalition of the forces of light. "'In a single protest against the wrong to an obscure Jew, I counted nearly four hundred names of the men highest in French science, literature, and art. "'That was the victory of France. "'The cause of justice in that case was begun and carried on for four years by unofficial citizens.' They were resisted and punished by government after government, and happily militarism never yielded its prey. It preferred to degrade itself by perjuries and brutalities which revealed to the world its interior blackness, as well as its brainlessness in not recognizing its last chance of rehabilitation offered at Rennes. That was the only victory worth anything. The restoration of Dreyfus to the army would have been defeat.' Instead of being rescued to a commonplace man in livery under the orders of base generals, Dreyfus is now one of the most enviable men in Europe. It is a hundredfold compensation for all his sufferings that he has been the means of instructing the French people in the principles of law and human rights, more in two years than they had learned in any two centuries, and in administering to militarism the heaviest blow it ever received my dear friend Monsieur paul guillais deputy and ex-minister wrote me that his son a rising young officer was so appalled by the revelations made of the honour rooted in dishonour prevailing among the military chieftains that he resigned his place in the army and abandoned his profession i was assured that there were other cases of the kind the military officers who under the republic had come to wear the mantle of aristocracy fallen from the titled noblesse Retain their prestige only among the young vulgarians at the paris exposition nineteen hundred America had three unique exhibits: exhibit one, the American Sabbath, our pavilion, and all our exhibits were closed on the weekly fete of the exposition. This being equivalent for the masses to closing them altogether. Exhibit two equestrian statue of George Washington, bareheaded sword pointing skyward. Interpretable as the general deifying his sword or defying heaven. Exhibit three. One or two thousand angry Americans surrounding a big bandbox like structure inside which a statue of Lafayette was being unveiled by Lafayette's descendants and presented to France by the American ambassador in the name of the dames of the revolution. This exhibit three calls for a note. These excluded Americans had obtained tickets which they supposed would admit them to the function, but they were only admitted to the impenetrable outside wall, where they could see and hear nothing. But we who had seats within could hear them, for their uproar was loud enough to make a discordant chorus to the eloquent French of Ambassador Porter and Bishop Ireland, and to drown at times the voices of President Loubet and other French speakers. Finally the noises took a harmonious turn— The disappointed Americans joined in singing, almost shouting, the patriotic hymn, America. Alas, nothing could have been more inappropriate. The verses being inaudible, there floated up to this company, consisting mainly of the chief personages of France, a strain known to them as God Save the King. The previous uproar was musical compared to this discordant note, which proved it an English mob gathered to insult the memory of Lafayette and heap contempt on the franco-american rapport. There were flashing eyes and whispers from one to another of "'Les Anglais! Les Anglais!' And although we Americans tried to explain to Frenchmen near us that it was an American hymn, the majority of them went off with the belief that England, which had shown marked coolness to the exposition, had sent a contingent sufficient for a manifestation of jealousy and spite. "'Stupid? Nay!' complimentary. These French gentlemen and ladies could not imagine such a lack of originality in Americans that, after all the generations elapsed since their independence, they had no national anthem except that sung when they were subjects of the British crown. In 1900, being in Paris, I was visited by Hogson Pratt, the venerable leader of the Peace Society in London, where I had long cooperated with him, and president of the International League of Peace and Arbitration in Europe. In view of the approaching Peace Congress in Paris, he came to inquire about a proposal of mine mentioned by Herbert Spencer, in a letter to Grant Allen, quoted in Claude's biography of Allen. The plan was to secure an unofficial arbitration by the most eminent jurists and publicists of all nations on every dispute that threatened peace. A court formed of unofficial men like Momranson, Virchow, Zola, Spencer, President Elliot, whose judgment, though it could not be enforced, would strengthen the party of peace in each country menacing another. My scheme was stated in an address before the Free Religious Association, Boston, in May 1898, and I wrote about it to Herbert Spencer. In his reply, from Maidenstone, July 17, 1898, Spencer said, I sympathize with your feelings and your aims, but not in your hopes. In 1882, though in consequence of my nervous disorder I had deliberately kept out of all public action, my interest in the matter prompted me to join with some others in trying to establish an anti-aggression league, and permanently wrecked my health in consequence, which should check our filibustering policy and tend towards peace. The movement failed utterly, and ever since I have seen that in people's present mood nothing can be done in that direction. Now that the white savages of Europe are overrunning the dark savages everywhere, now that the European nations are vying with one another in political burglaries, now that we have entered upon an era of social cannibalism, in which the strong nations are devouring the weaker, now that the national interests, national prestige, pluck, and so forth, are alone thought of, and equity has utterly dropped out of thought, while rectitude is scorned as unctuous, It is useless to resist the wave of barbarism. There is a bad time coming, and civilized mankind will morally be uncivilized before civilization can again advance. Such a body as that which you propose, even could its members agree, would be pooh-poohed as sentimental and visionary. The universal aggressiveness and universal culture of bloodthirst will bring back military despotism, out of which, after many generations, partial freedom may again emerge i remark in this fatalism of herbert spencer some unconscious survival of that ancient faith which developed the devil into being at once the enemy and the ally of god why should partial freedom emerge again from military despotism after many generations or ever though aggressiveness and bloodthirst seem universal in several nations there is distributed through these and all nations a moral and peaceful nation and my aim was to organize this moral nation sufficiently to reinforce the peace party in each country threatening war, by bringing to its aid the judgment of the best representatives of civilization as to the path of justice. They need agree but in one thing, that war can settle nothing except which country is the strongest. The fact that Herbert Spencer had written to Grant Allen something which I had not seen, and that Hogston Pratt had adopted my idea, gave me a ground for writing again to Herbert Spencer. He replied, writing from Bepton Rectory, Sussex, August fifteenth, 1900, that he had not seen the reference in Claude's biography of Grant Allen, and in conclusion said, If I was not encouraged to hope for any benefit from your plan at the time, I wrote in 1898, I am still less encouraged now, the process of re which has long been going on is now going on at an increasing rate and will continue to go on waves of human opinion and passion are not to be arrested until they have spent themselves you appear to think as i used to think in earlier days that mankind are rational beings and that when a thing has been demonstrated they will be convinced everything proves the contrary a man is a bundle of passions which severally use his reason to get gratification and the result in all times and all places depends on what passions are dominant. At present there is an unusual resurgence of the passions of the brute. Still more now than a generation ago, men pride themselves not in those faculties and feelings which distinguish them as human beings, but in those which they have in common with inferior beings, pride themselves in approaching as nearly as they can to the character of the bulldog.' Hogston Pratt recognized that my aim was to control the bulldog in a nation by exciting its pride, to stand well in the eyes of the most eminent thinkers and jurists of the world. He agreed with me that the friends of peace must make some new departure. The old peace societies had been pleading for generations. Everybody professed love of peace, but war went on all the same. A company was invited to listen to my statement in the Republican Club, and they all agreed with it. Though one or two French gentlemen could not quite appreciate my insistence on the principle that the arbiters must in no case be officially connected with their own or any government. This principle was essential, and in the pamphlet I was requested to write, it was pointed out that it was impossible to secure an unbiased opinion, or one not liable to suspicion, from an official. My pamphlet was translated into French and German and distributed to all in the Peace Congress at Paris, 1900. It was vaguely approved in an incidental resolution, but the Congress had gathered mainly to utter triumphal shouts over the Hague Conventions. It was only in the theatrical reviews that the tragical comedy of the Hague Conventions was truly recognized. In one a member of the Hague Congress informs the comper: Henceforth we are to fight all the same, but fight pacifically. The old peace men were so anxious to believe that their cause had at length triumphed that it was vain to point out to them that the Hague Congress had at best only left nations where they had always been, free to arbitrate, or free to fight as their interests or passions might dictate. But for myself I then declared that the Hague Congress had given a new lease to war by including it among civilized methods. It was, I said, fundamental in our issue to affirm that there is no such thing as civilized warfare. I might have expected some sympathizers, after the Hague court in the Venezuela case, put a premium on war by deciding that a creditor who approaches his debtor with a gun shall have precedence in payment over the creditor who makes his request like a gentleman. But no, the first National Peace Congress of Great Britain, which met in June 1904 at Manchester, justified the decision, albeit with regrets, at the encouragement given to murder as a means of collecting debts. The venerable Apostle of Peace, Hogston Pratt, wrote to the Congress, "'At last I must fall out of the ranks, because old age has overtaken me.' His words express the condition of all the old peace societies. They have fallen out of the ranks through the senility indicated in their acceptance of the Hague Court with its civilized warfare and debt collecting by bloodshed as a principle of international law. In a Gnostic legend Solomon was summoned from his tomb and asked, who first named the name of god the devil was his answer did reason permit belief in a personal devil one might recognize the supreme diabolical artifice in this sheltering under a holy name of all the desolating cruelties of men all the wars that have degraded mankind into egotistic aggregates or nations glorying in their ensigns of inhumanity The popular belief in progress as something going on in the world under a divine order sanctions all scourges as the scourge of God, and ensures social deterioration. When an evil is pointed out, the answer is, yes, but things will improve. It is like saying of a habitual debauchee that the longer his bad habits continue, the more likely he is to break them. But in big things like nations, deity is supposed to be concerned, and rules of individual experience set aside. Providence in its own good time will do thus and so. We shall have a new race of great statesmen, orators, authors, artists. Enough deterioration lurks in that infatuation to interpret the gnostic legend of a devil-invented deity. When I visited J. G. Whittier at his pretty home near Amesbury toward the close of his life, I found the beautiful old gentleman, who had faced mobs and undergone ordeals, playing croquet against himself out among the many-coloured autumn leaves. We had a long talk about old anti-slavery days, and his poetic fire rekindled. The great moral cause had been his inspiration. It made him a poet. From his solitude he beheld in vision the travail of his soul, and was satisfied, He remains in my memory as a fruit of the moral spirit that breathed over the nation like tropical air, and brought forth every seed of talent to its fullness. It would be only a source of personal sorrow to those who moved amid the stately growths of literature and art in England, Germany, and America in the last century that they can meet such no more, were their place filled with happy and peaceful populations. But under the air now breathing abroad spring up armed men, eager to strew the earth with dead bodies the great prizes of the foremost saxon nations are bestowed for successful manslaughter there can arise no important literature nor art nor real freedom and happiness among any people until they feel their uniform a livery and see in every battlefield an inglorious arena of human degradation the only cause that can uplift the genius of a people as the anti-slavery cause did in america is the war against war. It appears but too probable that my old eyes must close upon a world given over to the murderous exploitation of the weak nations by the strong, even the new peace treaties between the latter being apparently alliances for mutual support in devouring helpless tribes and their lands. There are indeed a few hopeful signs. The grand victory of the unofficial pen over the sword in the Dreyfus case, in France, and the burgeoning of spanish genius since the two ulcers cuba and manila that wasted spain were removed inspire my hope that what lord salisbury called the decadence of those nations will prove their assent my last essays translated into french by m henri monon have been well received by the paris press One of these was an address delivered before the graduates club in Columbia University, which aimed to dissipate the delusions about American history which have consecrated the sword. And now, at the end of my work, I offer yet a new plan for ending war, namely that the friends of peace and justice shall insist on a demand that every declaration of war shall be regarded as a sentence of death by one people on another and shall be made only after a full and formal judicial inquiry and trial, at which the accused people shall be fairly represented. This was suggested to me by my old friend, Professor Newman, who remarked that no war in history had been preceded by a judicial trial of the issue. The meanest prisoner cannot be executed without a trial. A declaration of war is the most terrible of sentences. It sentences a people to be slain and mutilated, their women to be widowed, their children orphaned, their cities burned, their commerce destroyed the real motives of every declaration of war are unavowed and unavowable let them be dragged into the light no war would ever occur after fair judicial trial by a tribunal in any country open to its citizens implore apache o my reader from whom i now part implore peace not of deified thunder-clouds but of every man woman and child thou shalt meet do not merely offer the prayer give peace in our time but do thy part to answer it then, at least, though the world be at strife, there shall be peace in thee. Farewell End of chapter fifty two End of autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume Two by Moncur Conway.